just when you thought it was safe to go onto iTunes. This is Next Level Guy. The only website that makes self-development as fun as going to the movies. It's time to take the red pill and escape the Matrix. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Next Level Guy Show podcast with your host, Ian Dawson Mackay. Today's guest is Tom Bilyeu. Tom originally built Quest Nutrition into a billion dollar brand by showing that food can still be good for you and taste amazing. He's now helping people escape the matrix in their lives and find their passion and mission by interviewing some of the most successful people on the planet and showing how they developed the mindset success and you can too. But first, a quick word on our affiliates. Next Level Guy has some fantastic deals and special offers with some great companies. To check these out, all you need to do is go to nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates. That's nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates. I would definitely recommend that you check out the Tools of Titans a book from Tim Ferriss. That's available on my Amazon link. It's like an encyclopedia of success tricks and tips. You should also have a look at the jeans from Barbell Apparel. They highlight your gains and look amazing, but they feel as soft and as easy to wear as tracksuit bottoms. You can learn how to be a beast in the gym by getting a copy of the Lifting Lyceum. And if you want to get better relationships and better women in your life, you need to pick up a copy of The Natural by Aris D. Max. Now, let's get to the interview with Tom. Hi Tom, I'm a big fan. Um, for those people who are listening who maybe don't know who you are, can you just give a little background of who you are, what you do, and why you're so well known? My life is entirely about pulling people out of the matrix. And the matrix to me is the limiting beliefs that certainly I placed on myself and I find that most people place on themselves that stop them um, from doing the amazing things that they're capable of. So my first question is something I ask everybody. What, in your opinion, makes a successful man? How does somebody know that they've, you know, that they are a man of worth or success? Uh, look, I can give you a clever definition of success, um, which to me, the only thing that matters in life is whether somebody's enjoying their life. If you're enjoying their life, then you've won. But when people say success, they're, um, I'll go with a, a traditional definition. And if you're able to control your own destiny, do the things that you love and make a living doing it, to me, you've been successful. Now, if you hold yourself to a very high standard like I do, um, to me, I'm, I am very interested in playing at scale. I'm very interested in playing on a world stage. and I'm very compelled by the notion of being the greatest of all time at what I do. So those to me, like when I say success and I'm talking about myself, that's what I'm talking about. Now, you built Quest Nutrition into a mega successful business, and now you're aiming to do the same thing with your new venture, Impact Theory. So can you tell me what your fundamentals are for developing your body and your mind to work towards your goals? You know, Is your body really a reflection of the mind, for example? The body's definitely a reflection of the mind. There's no question about that. And the fundamentals to that really come down to identity. If I'm completely honest, like if you, you need massive amounts of discipline to develop both your body and your mind, but that discipline is going to stem from your identity and whether or not you see yourself as somebody that has discipline and starting from identity is critical because identity is what drives behavior. 
So if you don't start there, you're sort of trying to tack on behaviors and things that aren't necessarily going to stick. So for instance, if you're going to start, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions, rather than say, I'm going to do this behavior, focus on being that kind of person. So, um, for instance, if you wanted to start working out, you need to change your identity around, like, I'll give you how I do it. For me, I am somebody that's willing to suffer to achieve their goals. And one of my goals is longevity. One of my goals is functional strength. Uh, another one of my goals is aesthetics, you know, looking good. So if I want to live forever, which I do, and if I want to feel good while I'm living forever, and um, if I'm willing to suffer to meet my goals, then I should be willing to go to the gym every day, which I know is good in terms of longevity. I know is good in terms of feeling good and staying in um, top shape. So whether or not the act of working out is pleasant is irrelevant because I'm the kind of person that's willing to suffer for their goals. And I just tell myself that over and over and over as a way to reinforce that identity. I tell that to other people. I feel proud that I'm willing to do that. And so if I want to feel good about myself and really stay true to my identity, then I need to make sure that my behaviors line up with that. And that is how I always make a change of behavior as I start with a change of identity first. So how important are habits? You've mentioned before in an interview I heard that your habits shape your identity. Can you please explain what this means and you know, why should we really care about our habits? How do they affect us in our daily lives? At the end of the day, you are what you actually do. So if you're trying to tell yourself and other people, hey, I'm the type of person that's willing to suffer for my goals, but you never actually suffer for your goals, and every time that you have the opportunity, you take the easy road out, you're going to know that that's fake. And so your identity then becomes the person who is lying to themselves and others. Like you won't be blind to that fact. And whether you ever vocalize it outwardly or not is irrelevant to the identity that you hold internally. So the things that you do every day, the habits that you have really will become who you are and who you perceive yourself to be. And if you want to be proud of yourself, you want to feel good about who you are, you want to have amazing self-esteem, then the things that you do for your habit loops become incredibly important. And then if you have any value towards success, however you define it, um, your success is going to be predicated on those things that you're doing every day and whether the things that you do are actually moving you towards your goals or not. Ah, so I love that outlook. So what do you think are the habits or the skills, you know, in the to skill toolbox, for example, that every guy should have, you know, what, kind of things do you think the modern day guy listening to this is maybe missing in their daily lives? Well, the, the most important thing that I do is read. So I read all the time. My obsession is with skill acquisition. And what I really want people to understand is between who you are today and who you're going to need to become in order to execute on whatever you want to execute is a skill set gap. And your job is to cross that gap. And the only way that you're going to do it is by acquiring the necessary skills. And for people to understand the following is, is insanely critical. Your skill set has already taken you as far as it's going to take you. So where you are right now today is as far as your current skills are going to take you. So if you want to go farther, then you're going to have to acquire new skills. And that is just incredibly, incredibly important. And if I were to pin my success on one thing, it is my obsession with improvement. 
Ah, okay. So, do you think that's the main problem facing today's guys? That you know, have we gotten so used to taking the easy road out and getting everything spoon fed to us that we've forgotten how to, you know, to fight for what we want, and we just kind of would rather just sit by the wayside and not not take something on if it's a challenge? I don't know that it's not that it's a challenge. I think that people don't demand enough of themselves. They don't believe that they're capable of as much as they really are capable of. And so if I were going to go on a tirade, it would be about really holding yourself to just an absurdly high standard and believing that it's actually possible to achieve that standard. And that's going to drive your behavior and then rewarding yourself emotionally for not achieving it. Forget about that. Just that you're willing to actually put in the work. You're willing to go on that journey. You're willing to look inward and constantly self-assess whether or not you're actually making progress towards those goals. And it's the willingness to stare at your inadequacies that become the thing you're proud of. So it's not whether you don't have inadequacies. I'm wildly inadequate in virtually everything I'm trying to accomplish in my life, but I'm willing to look at that. I'm willing to go, whoa, like you're really deficient in this thing that you're gonna have to get good at in order to execute on this. But then I'm also willing to put in the work to acquire those skills, and I know that I'm gonna keep doing that and pushing in order to get where I wanna go. So where do men typically go wrong, you know, in the way they think? What kind of things should we fix about our mindsets to make sure that we're building ourselves up for best chance of succeeding? A growth mindset, I think, is is uber foundational. And what I mean by that is most people believe, at least at some subtle, deep level, that their talent and intelligence are fixed traits. And as such, their life is really about doing the things that they need to optimize that versus having a growth mindset where you realize, hey, I've got goals, whatever those goals are, and I'm gonna work backwards from that to understand the skills that I need to and can acquire, that I can get good at anything that I set my mind to, and then apply it that way. And if whether you're gonna be an entrepreneur and start your own company, or whether you're gonna be a linchpin employee and just really try to be the greatest person that company has ever seen at that role, like both of those are very valid choices that you need to make based on what makes you feel most alive, what makes you feel most comfortable, enjoy your life the most. Like those are all the things that you know have to be decided on an individual basis. But regardless of which of those things you're gonna do, that you do it completely. And I think because people have a fixed mindset, because they feel that some things are out of their control, you know, the boss is bad or evil and, you know, is taking advantage of me and therefore they show up to take advantage back and not realizing that, look, if you think that your company is taking advantage of you, leave or change the company, but don't stay and bitch. Like that's just, that's such a pointless existence. It, it literally doesn't make sense. So Making the demand, like if I were going to say to the modern man, like what you need to do to love your life, which remember for me, that's all that matters. If you love your life, you've already won. If you're going to love your life, you need to come in and play hard and be maximizing your potential. And I think that humans have an innate desire to improve. I think that progress is such a foundational building block of happiness, but not momentary happiness that you get from eating a bowl of ice cream, the happiness of being something, being someone that you're proud of. I think that that progress is, is just, it's ingrained in us. And when there isn't progress, when you're not making those demands, when you're not pushing yourself, when you're not really realizing that potential that you know you have in yourself, there's always going to be a degree of frustration. So those, I think, are just really critical components to that. So 
on your website and you know on your talk show you refer a lot to the matrix can you tell me a little bit about what the matrix is how it holds us back and you know what what's the big deal about being in the matrix why should we be looking to escape it you know can we not just live a normal life by staying in it or is it a negative repercussions from that well the the matrix as i define it is the set of limiting beliefs that people have about themselves or just human capabilities in general that stop them from doing what they could do with their life and if you know david foster wallace and his concept of this is water he talks about how the fish is the last one to realize that water exists. And that's how I feel about people's belief system. They don't even realize that they have a belief system. They don't realize that their life is predicated on this ideology that they were handed as a kid, that society has reinforced, that you know bad or traumatic experiences have continued to contribute to, and that they have this worldview, which and I even put myself in this camp, like even I know that my worldview is only going to continue to expand, that the things that I believe are possible will just get bigger and bigger as time goes by because I'm constantly like looking at that and checking myself against the things that hold me back and stop me from really trying to realize grand potential. And the, the idea that I use now is if you don't believe that you could go and terraform Mars, you're just not thinking big enough. So when you look at Elon Musk, he actually believes he can do that. And he works backwards from that goal and says, okay, well, there's no rockets that exist that can take us to Mars. So I'm going to need to learn rocket science and actually figure out how to build rockets. I mean, this is crazy, right? Like that's, that's the kind of thinking that I'm talking about. And that's what happens when you escape the matrix. When you no longer think that's absurd, that's when you begin to really be limitless in your thinking and then really begin to explore what you're actually capable of. And I think that most people never get anywhere near what they're capable of because they have a mindset that limits them. So for somebody listening just now who's thinking, okay, I need to reshape my mind. How can I be more like Tom? How would you go about breaking it down for somebody? You know, what tips would you give them? Um, well, first, let me just say it's very generous of you to... Um, to say that people should be aiming to be more like me, I would say that at the end of the day, it's just really understanding that the human mind is limitless. And even if that's a lie, that's an empowering lie. And so I believe that people should do and believe that which moves them towards their goals. So I don't overvalue the truth, I overvalue what's effective. So shaping your mind in a way that is going to allow you to not be confined to who you are today, but rather focus entirely on what is a human animal capable of. And I believe that we've become the apex predator because we have, of every species on the face of the planet, we're able to adapt the most rapidly and to the most varying degree of circumstances. And because of that, we're able to do just absolutely astonishing things. So training your mind in order to shuck off all of those things that make you think that you're capable of less than you are is, is really the take home. Now that's sort of up in the clouds. Now let's get really tactical. Um, I think that people should always be reading. I think that you should have very concrete goals, like hyper specific concrete goals, not, I want to be rich. If that's a thing for you, then say like, this is exactly how I want to get rich. My business is going to be X, Y, Z. The mission of my business is going to be this. So I'll give it to you in the context of impact theory, which is my new company. 
my goal up in the clouds is to be, I want to pull people out of the matrix. Okay, that's great, but that's, you know, somewhat nebulous. How am I actually going to do that? Well, I'm going to need to get people to change their water, right? Their belief system. How do human beings change their belief system? I'm trying to make it more and more concrete, right? So how do human beings change their belief system? Well, I've looked at the research. The way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information, if you look at just the state of brain science and, and what that's all telling us, is narrative is the way that humans, in particular, happen to create their sense of identity, create their belief system, their ideology, all of that. So, okay, well, if I know that the way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information, which is what I need them to do to have a totally new belief system, is through narrative, then I know that if I'm going to pull people out of the matrix, I need to be playing in the realm of narrative. Okay, what are the dominant forms of narrative right now? They are books, comic books, TV shows, movies, and video games. If that's true, who's done that better than anybody else? The answer, I think, is unequivocally Disney. Okay, well, then I need to understand Disney. And so I'm reading books about Disney. I'm looking at Disney's track record, how they came about. What are the things that make Disney Disney? And in looking at that, I realized that there's something that Disney does that no, it's been staring people in the face since the 1930s and nobody has replicated. And that's that every single piece of content that they put out feeds into brand ideology. If I tell you that I'm going to go see a Warner Brothers movie or I say I'm going to go see a Sony movie or a Paramount movie, you don't know anything about it. It could be uplifting, could be depressing, um, could be a horror film, could be satire. You literally know nothing. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something about it. And that's because every piece of content feeds into that brand ideology, which allows them to employ what's called a total merchandising strategy, which is because every piece of content that they put out resonates at the same emotional level. If I give you um, anything and say, this bedsheet is Disney, this cup is Disney, this um, tree ornament is Disney, like all of it feels good. And it, it has this very similar emotional feeling to it. And because of that, Disney is now able to make just an absolutely absurd amount of money off of merchandising, theme parks, like things that no other business is able to monetize at the level they are because everything that they put out is totally disjointed. So it only becomes about that property, right? Warner Brothers can sell you um, Harry Potter stuff. It can sell you um, Batman stuff, but nobody feels like those belong together. So they don't, even though they're the same company, they don't talk in the same way to people. So they're constantly having to reinvent themselves. So impact theory, even though our mission is to pull people out of the matrix, as you work backwards through the, that hyper-concrete path that I just walked you through, we realize that we're a merchandising company. So once you have that hyper-specificity of what should I be doing on a daily basis, what are the areas of expertise that I need to have, you will know how to execute against those goals. You'll know the things you should be reading. You'll know the path that you should be walking. You'll be able to assess whether you're making progress or not. That, to me, is how people should be living their lives. So you always read about these highly successful people, you know, that they've got rituals and routines and they do things every day. Can you give us an example of what's in your typical day, if you have such a thing? You know, are you a fan of rituals and meditation and the like? Or do you just deal with things as they come in? You know, can you break them down? Like, why should we care about rituals? Because, you know, somebody's ritual might be that they come in from work and they immediately start watch TV and, you know, then they go off to bed and they've built that into a ritual. So how can we make sure that the rituals we're creating are the right rituals for us? And how do rituals really help us, be, you know, build a successful life? 
Yeah, definitely. So first of all, I think that to your earlier point about routine and ritual, those things are critical. And if you look at, if anybody looks at their life right now, they're going to see that they have routines and rituals that were unintentional. So I'll just use the example that you gave. You go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to sleep, rinse and repeat. Now, if that, if you can accept that that's your life ritual, that's the routine that you have in place, now ask yourself, where's that taking you? Because I bet if we look into most people's lives, there's other elements to that ritual, which is go to work, hate it, bitch to your coworkers about what a shitty place you work at, um, come home, watch mindless TV so that you can decompress and not think about anything stressful. So it's really just pure entertainment. And then you go to bed at some random time that probably has more to do with what you went through during that day than it actually does like fatigue or strategy. And you're left with a routine where you're, you're living by what I'll call accident. And it's the chaos theory all over. Your routine is controlled by the things that you bounce into, meaning a stressful day at work. So you come home and uh, you know there's a video game that you wanna play or something because it takes your mind off of it. So you play that video game and then you get caught up in the video game and you play later than you thought or you go on Reddit and it's you know mind candy. And so you're on there for longer than you expected. And now, oh man, like it's you know one o'clock in the morning and I have my alarm goes off at seven and, and that it goes off at seven because that's how long I need to get up and shower and get ready. Like that's where most people live. And because the moment, like any one moment is so emotionally real, that nobody ever stops to think, hey, I'm gonna ignore that emotion, I'm gonna ignore that stressful thing that happened today because it doesn't serve me in terms of getting to my goals. So what I tell people they need to do is they need to create highly intentional routines and habits that are based entirely around one thing and one thing only, getting to their goal. Now the next question is, what should my goal be? Oh, I'm told it should be my passion. Awesome, I totally agree with that, but how do I find my passion, which is what most people think. I'm here to tell you, you don't find anything. So there's not gonna be any turning inward and uncovering some deep passion or mission in life that somehow has been there since birth that you just never realized. It's not how the human animal works. You're gonna turn inward, you're gonna see little flickers of interest. You need to do the hard work of turning that interest, that small flicker of interest, into a full-blown passion. And the way that you do that is by gaining mastery in that thing. So let's say that your flickers of interest are um, video games and, um, helping the poor. Okay. Awesome. Like those are two things that actually resonate with you. Maybe not some full blown, um, fire, but you're interested in it. Fantastic. Now go get good at those two things. And in those things, find out which one of them you have a, a real deep passion for. So you start playing video games, but you think, okay, I'm going to set a goal. Now my goal is to become a competitive video game player that makes all their money off of video games. So look at who's done that well. Uh, let's look at some streamers or people that make all their money off of um, winning prizes. That's already gonna tell you what games you need to play, who's making money off streaming, what games have big purses. So you're probably gonna end up playing um, League of Legends, which is the biggest video game worldwide. It has the most streamers that are making the most money, the biggest prizes, all that stuff. So you start playing that and you set yourself a breakdown of how many hours a day you're gonna play. And two or three weeks into that, you realize, wow, this really sucks. And I don't enjoy, like once this became my sort of second job, uh, I don't like it anymore. Okay, in the process of gaining mastery, you realize that interest is not going to develop into a passion. Fantastic. Now move on to the next thing. 
I really like helping people. And first you go and you start ladling at a soup kitchen and you realize, man, this actually does make me feel good. But like, I just, I can tell um, that because anyone can do it, it's not really bringing the full weight of my passion out, but there's something here to it. So what I want to do is leverage a skill that I already have and help people get good at that. So let's say that you're just, you're good at explaining things to people. You're good at helping them see insights. And so you go donate your time at a job center and you help people get better at interviewing for jobs and you realize, whoa, like as I get better at communicating to this and I see people going out into the world and they're getting jobs, like I am loving this. And now I want to be better. And I don't just want to be a social worker. Like I want to find a way, you see what I mean? Like I could keep going with this all day, but it's like, as you get into that process of gaining mastery and getting good at helping people, you realize, whoa, this actually could be a full-blown passion. Now you know what to set your goal on. You can be really specific. Where do you want that to lead you? Then you know what hyper-specific skill set you need to have. Now you can create a routine that's based around that. So I'll give you my routine, right? I want to pull people out of the matrix. I already walked you through what I identified is that thing that I have to become great at, which is running a studio. So what does my day look like. First of all, I go to bed at 9 p.m. like it's a religion. The reason that I do that is because I don't want to set an alarm because sleep is path one to being cognitively optimized, which if I'm going to pull this off, I need to be cognitively optimized essentially at all times. So I go to bed at nine so that I can sleep as long as I need and wake up early enough to get everything done that I need to do. I sleep as long as I need to um, my average is like five to six hours. And that's just my average. It's going to be different for everybody. If I needed nine, I would get nine. Uh, but I wake up when I wake up, I immediately go straight to the gym. I give myself 10 minutes to get out of bed and then I'm into the gym. I do my workout, which I hate doing, but for the reasons that I talked about earlier, like that's very important. It also has to do with cognitive optimization. They've just, there's enough studies out there to show that this is just real uh, and if you're not working out, if you're not optimizing your body, you are not optimizing your mind. So I do my workout immediately after I work out, I follow it with meditation. The reason that I do meditation, again, to this point of where are you trying to go? What are you trying to get to in life? Creating that silence to you talk about wanting to get away from the noise, man. If you don't take time to meditate, and I'm talking 20, 30 minutes a day, at least I say five days a week because that's how often I do it, but five days a week to really create the quiet mental space where you're lowering your stress levels, you're lowering your anxiety, you're quieting your thoughts so that you can actually hear that intuition, which always whispers and never shouts about what you should be doing, ideas maybe that help you move forward in your career or your business, whatever you're trying to do. Then after that, I follow that with thinkitating. And what that is, is basically meditation is supposed to quiet your thoughts. But I found that meditating puts you in what's called an alpha wave state where you're at your most calm and creative. And I found it very frustrating to be in such a calm, creative state and not have the opportunity to think thoughts that are going to help me. So I wanted to give myself the knowledge that, hey, once you're done meditating, you're in this alpha wave state, you'll actually have very specific time to think those thoughts, to let your mind wander in that state over one of your biggest problems. You know, so whatever problem my business is facing during that time, I really just let my mind crawl over it. I don't make any attempt to stop my thoughts or point them in any direction other than, hey, here's sort of a high level thing you're trying to deal with. And then once I've finished that, which I let go as, as long as it's useful, um, which is anywhere from, say, 30 minutes to an hour, then I immediately start reading. 
I really believe in the what I'll call a math equation of ideas in equal ideas out. So encountering new ideas is a way to stimulate the mind, get you thinking new thoughts. Um, and then after I read, I have a list of important things, which are the most important things that I could be doing for my business. And I just keep that list and I religiously go through it, making sure that I'm taking actionable steps. Now I do all of that typically before my first employee shows up. There are times where I've clocked seven, eight hours uh, before the first employee shows up, which usually is around, I don't know, nine-ish. Um, so if I wake up at two, which is not unheard of for me, um, then by the time they roll in at, at nine, I've gotten seven hours of you know working out, work, meditate, all that stuff. So can you give an example of how you meditate? You know, do you use like technology and use some of these apps like Headspace and that sort of thing? Or are you somebody who believes that technology has really messed us up? You know, that it's our um, addiction to technology that's really holding guys back because there's so many, you know, things that can pull us away, so many distractions and that sort of thing. I have. I use an app called Calm. I don't do guided meditation. I just play the sounds of nature. So if it's nighttime, I'll play the sounds of it's like a meadow at night or something like that. Um, if it's daytime and it's a beautiful day outside, then I might listen to the sounds of uh, a tropical beach. If it's raining outside, I absolutely love um, sitting somewhere where I can see the outside. I meditate with my eyes closed, but that sort of framing as I sit down and see that it's raining and then listen to the sound of the rain as I meditate makes me feel like I'm outside even though I'm dry. I, it's just really a, a rad vibe. Um, and I close my eyes and I do Mark Divine or a variation, I should say, of Mark Divine's um, Just Breathe meditation. So uh, he does a box breathing technique where all four sides of the breath, the inhale, the inhale hold, the exhale, and the exhale hold are all equal parts. I found that that didn't quite feel right for me, so uh, I vary it a little bit, but um, it's it's definitely a variation on that theme. And, and when I find my mind wandering, I, I literally say, just breathe. And I focus on the part of the breath that I'm in and, and optimizing that pleasure, and that's it. Now, unfortunately, our mental programming can go wrong. So how should we deal with crap programs like depression, low self-esteem? You know, how can we eliminate these kind of obstacles and reinstall the better mindsets and programming so we can actually go after what we want in life? Well, I'm all for uh, availing yourself of anything and everything that's at your disposal. So, man, if you need medical help, get it. There is zero shame in that. People should aggressively pursue any and every option that they have. Um, but I don't think even if you get medical intervention, I don't think that's enough. And I, I, I wouldn't start there either. Um, so I think that if you have depression, meditation is going to do very little to help you and that you really need to understand that certainly clinical levels of depression and anxiety, there's been a lot of brain wiring going on. And so you're going to have to undo all of that. Now you may uh, benefit greatly from medication to help you with that process, but you still have to do the work of doing the unwiring. The medication is going to mask the symptoms, which can be a great kickstart, but it certainly isn't going to unwire where you've got. So I would say one of the most fundamental things you need to do, whether you're dealing with clinical depression, anxiety, or just, you know, garden variety, low self-esteem, uh, an identity that isn't serving you, whatever, you need to learn about the brain. And, and I'm talking the anatomical structures. What is neurochemistry? How does the brain, like how does 
gut flora, for instance, uh, impact is like roughly 70% of the serotonin in your system, which is one of the feel-good chemicals. Roughly 70% of that is produced uh, in your gut by the microbiome. So it's like really understanding like the physiology of this stuff and making sure that you're doing the things that you can to optimize that stuff just so that you're in a positive brain state and then you can get into all the stuff we talked about earlier with habits and routines and identity and you know that, that stuff becomes important. But just understanding one fundamental thing that neurons that fire together wire together. So a little depression tends to beget a lot of depression and it's a downward spiral that's getting worse and worse because as you think about your life, and you sit in a depressive state, like they begin to reinforce each other. So you begin to think about your life, makes you feel depressed, which then makes you think about your life in a more depressed state, which then makes you more depressed. So now those neurons are firing together and you're hardwiring this um, assessment of yourself and your life with that depressive state. And so you create a super highway to that, uh, to steal a Tony Robbins phrase. So people have to be really, really cognizant of the way that the brain works, the way that those things get wired, the way that you have to actively unwire them that you get what you focus on so it's like if you force yourself even if it's fake if you force yourself to look at everything in your life through a positive lens you'll actually feel more positive uh, it it's just the way the brain works so that's a critical step so something i used to do when i was a kid would be to watch films and i tried to mimic like the characters you know like when i used to watch like 24 with jack bauer for example i would find that i would be more productive if i pretended i was jack bauer trying to get the information in before a bomb went off or something as ludicrous as that but i also found that by imitating some of the characters it made me give me more confidence or you know more of an enthusiasm in the gym or something like that so do you think this kind of approach this kind of imitation this faking it till we make it is this kind of useful how can we ensure that you know we're not just watching things or reading things we can actually absorb it and you know utilize it to succeed no question i think that that kind of content can have a huge impact, but you have to open yourself up to actively being changed by it. And you've got to put the advice that you get to use. So if, for instance, you watch a, a Batman cartoon and or movie, whatever, and there's something amazing that Batman does in that that you think, oh man, I wish I was like that, actively start cultivating that. Like start making those same demands of you, which is really, really important. I'll give you an example from a Batman cartoon that I watched where um, in the cartoon, Batman gets amnesia. And because he has amnesia, he's able to be held captive by people because he doesn't have the confidence. He feels weak. Um, and because of that, other people are able to dominate him and keep him in this sort of prison. Then in, I mean, it's a cartoon, so bear with it, but he has this moment where all of a sudden somebody says something that triggers in him and in his mind, he screams, I'm Batman, and he remembers who he is. And because of that, then he's bold and able to take the steps to um, go on the offensive and get himself out of this prison. And I thought that's such a powerful reminder that you are exactly who you believe you are. And when he believed he was weak, he was weak. And when he believed he was powerful, he was powerful. But you then have to go do things to build that identity of being powerful. It's not enough to look at the cartoon and go, wow, Batman's so cool and I want to be like that. You've got to go out and then cultivate that in your life. Make those demands of yourself in your life to realize that confidence has a real world corollary, that it will make people perceive you differently, that you have to do things to be confident, that your identity has to be you know, around that. 
or if you're watching a podcast and real people and they give you something and they say, hey, you should try X, Y, Z. You need to actually go out and try it. So I find that people read books as if their goal was to get to the end of the book rather than as if their goal was to learn new techniques to actively begin using. In your talk show, you mentioned that you love the film The Matrix and how it opened up your view in the world and made you really think about things. What was it about The Matrix that had a real impact on you? You know, What other characters really inspire you and do you think guys should look at as role models for bettering and expanding their viewpoint? Absolutely. Uh, Neo in The Matrix to me is first and foremost, which is why that movie so captivated my attention. You know, somebody who goes on the journey from not believing that they're the one to realizing that they actually can be, but there are certain things that they're going to have to do and that he isn't the one as long as he believes he's not. And then he becomes the one simply by believing that he is and going through the motions. But that movie is really about belief. And that's why, man, I just cannot recommend that enough. I think Iron Man's incredible. Um, somebody that really leverages their skill set to build something amazing and then somebody who achieves like all the worldly success in the world but for them that's not enough and they want to really have impact and and do something tremendous and meaningful for people uh i love that batman's another great one uh no superpowers but forces himself to learn and train and get great and become amazing and i love the way that they talk about the realities of having a dark side and you know, do you give in to that or do you have a code that you live by? I mean, those three are, are powerful driving forces in my own life. Um, and then beyond that, I would say diving into nonfiction is also incredibly powerful. Um, I was rocked to my core by uh, the biography of Teddy Roosevelt, um, had the same sense reading the uh, biography of Disney by Neil Gabler, a similar uh, reading about um, I think it was Walter Isaacson that wrote the one on, um, man, I'm blanking. He's on the, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, so there's just a lot of really, really incredible people that a lot of amazing things have been written about. And then if you go to impacttheory.com, you'll find my 25 uh, most important books that'll help you develop a mindset, um, which are all nonfiction and, and no bio, uh, I might have one or two biographies on there, but it's primarily just books that'll give you the tactics and techniques that you need to develop your own mind. And on your show, you know, Impact Theory, you've interviewed some amazing people. Is there anyone there that stands out as a prime example of somebody that somebody listening should aspire to be like? You know, is there anybody that kind of blew you away, that really kind of really surprised you? Most definitely. And the person that most readily comes to mind is David Goggins. And that guy is just unbelievable you want to talk about somebody that seems like a real life superhero to me that guy is just he is he is an absolute freak of nature <laughs> i was blown away by him and for people that don't know him he's a, a retired navy seal uh was just next level as a seal doing incredible things and then when he gets out starts doing these ultra marathons and like 135 miles, it's just nuts, and becomes one of the most successful and decorated ultra marathoners ever. And when you talk to him, his whole thing was, I used to believe that I was the weakest man God ever created, and I wanted to become the hardest man that ever lived. And seeing what he puts himself through to become that is is just unbelievable. Yeah, he he rocked me to my core and 
has given me a lot of juice with which to uh, approach my own life. So you've interviewed some amazing people, you know, some top name people. But how do you prep for an interview? You know, how do you make sure that your interviews are different, that, you know, they can help change people's lives? And can these skills that you learn by interviewing, etc., can they be transferable? Can you use them in other um, contexts in your life? You know, could you use them to develop your social skills to become a better friend, for example? Wow. So those are, um, I think, very different skill sets. So I'll take the two extremes. Being a great interviewer and being a great friend are not um, necessarily going to benefit from the same skill set. Um, but being a better a better friend, let's start there because that's interesting and something that I, um, I actually don't think a lot about, which is terrible. Uh, but if I wanted to be a better friend, I, I will just start with compassion and having compassion for people, meeting them where they are, not judging them. And by the way, this is also great advice for oneself, um, having self-compassion, not judging you, um, understanding who you are now and, you know, certainly understanding that you can change. I think is really, really critical. Um, and, and being a great friend and being there and understanding that time and proximity are very valuable parts of that equation um, wanting good things for them. Those are all things that I think make you a great friend. Now, what makes you a great interviewer is really, for me, boils down to level of research and then trusting your instincts. So when I'm researching somebody, I, I familiarize myself with every interview that they've done up to that point. Uh, any writing they've done, I go in on that because I want to understand them so well that I can predict their answers. And what you'll find is when you're interviewing people, they have a loop and there's certain things that they talk about all the time. And the goal for me, at least as an interviewer, is to get them out of their loop. And I do that because the audience can go see the interviews that they've already done. And so if they're going to watch my interview, I want them to get out of that loop. So watching all of their content, researching them as well as I do is one, so that I can give the audience a new interview. And then two, so that as we're going, if they say something that surprises me or whatever, that I can follow that. And I know that area of their life well enough to explore it intelligibly so that I'm not asking for context. I already know the context. And so my job as the interviewer is to very rapidly give the audience that same context and then get into that new place that they're going to take us into. And because I know them so well, I can predict their answers. I know their loop. I steer them away from all the obvious answers that are going to eat up a lot of that time and hopefully get them to really reveal something that all of us can use in our life. And then have an agenda, which I think is really actually important. So if you come on my show, you may have done a hundred other shows and have something that you like to talk about that, you know, works on that show, but isn't good for me. So when you come on my show, I, whether you want to or not, I'm taking you into an area of mindset development because that's the promise that I make to my audience. So the interviews aren't going to be all over the place. And one of the hardest things that I do is I'll be interviewing somebody that that's maybe not what made them famous, but that's what I care about. That's what my audience cares about. And so I'm going to find a way to get them to bring value in that area. Oh, otherwise I don't bring them on the show. So there are a ton of amazing people out there 
who I don't bring on just because they're not going to be able to offer value in the area that I promised my audience I'm going to bring value. So how do you think I'm doing so far? No, I think it's great, man. I think that obviously you've done your homework. You know the things that um, I can deliver a lot of value in. There's a lot of crossover between your audience and and the people that resonate with me. So I think from a guest selection, um, that's very smart. Uh, and I won't say that necessarily I'm the best at it, but at least that you know I'm going to be able to talk about things your audience is, is going to find interesting. I think that's very, very smart. And uh, yeah, so... Yeah, you're doing a great job. Thank you very much. You know, somebody who I really look up to, that means a lot coming from someone like yourself. If I could even build a fraction of the, you know, the sh- show that you've built, I'd be delighted. So how can we pick our own missions? You know, is there any topics that can't be made into business? How can somebody judge whether an idea is suitable, you know, to be turned into business? Well, I, I don't mind if somebody's copying another company as long as they believe that that's the surest fire way to make good on the mission that they have. And the mission should be something that hasn't already been done so that it's actually, you know, a hole in the, the world, if you will, of something that actually needs to be addressed and then making sure that it's something that's real to you. And this is where don't judge yourself, like really decide What's real for me? What do I actually care about, right? And going back to that notion of you're going to look inward, all you're going to see is small flickers of interest. And which of those small flickers of interest can you turn into a full-blown passion? Can you then decide is going to be your mission? Because you're not going to turn inward and suddenly uncover like an archaeologist this mission that's been in you your whole life and you just somehow didn't see it. I mean, that hopefully when people say that out loud, like it just sounds patently absurd. Like if you had something that big and that driving inside of you, how would you be blind to it? You wouldn't. So you're going to look inward, see those small flickers of interest, turn them into something, decide then this is going to be my mission. Then once you state this is my mission, then it's about, okay, well, how do I actually make that happen, right? So, and I already walked everybody through, I decided my mission was to pull people out of the matrix first, and then I decided that we were going to be a studio. So I didn't go, I'm going to be a studio, and now what's my mission? So really being honest about what your mission is, and then what honestly is a path to that that is going to resonate with you because it is so important to pick a mission where the real path, not some BS path, but the real path to getting there is something that you'll enjoy every day, even if you're failing. So can you give an example of a great mission-based business, you know, one that really exonifies the, the characteristics that you're mentioning, you know? Well, we talked a little bit about it earlier. Tom Shoes is, is an awesome example of a mission-based company where they built a big and thriving, very financially lucrative business predicated on doing something awesome for the world. Like He wanted to find a way to give shoes to these kids. I think it was in this village in Peru, if I remember. It was definitely South America. And he goes there, realizes these kids aren't able to get the education that they want and deserve and certainly would make wonderful use of because they don't have shoes and they have to walk long distances to get to school. So he wanted to find a way to give them those shoes, but knew if I just go asking for money, I'm always going to be coming to the world with my handout. It's not a very um, sustainable strategy. So I want to find a powerful economic vehicle that will allow me to do this and created that notion of one for one for every pair of shoes that we 
sell, we will donate a pair. And that was something that really resonated with people. But he had to get actually good at making the shoes and building the business and the fulfillment infrastructure and all that. I mean, it's a real business. And wasn't begging for money. He was telling people, look, this is my business model, which became a very powerful marketing vehicle. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a business, profitable, that even after they give away the shoes, they have profits. And that's somebody who started with what his mission was, worked backwards into creating a business. Now, I don't expect anybody's mission to be the same as mine or be the mission to be the same as Tom's shoes. Like That needs to be something that's really honest to you and what resonates with you and what makes you feel alive. And people, there's just no shortcut. You have to dis decide that for yourself. Like you have to turn inward, do the work, and then decide this is what I'm going to do with my life. So, can anyone start a business? You know, do we have to have the entrepreneur mind? And if so, how can anybody listening develop it and build into this mindset to start their own business? Anyone can do it. And I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with being an entrepreneur. I think it has everything to do with the human condition. And passion is shorthand for it makes me feel alive. It makes me feel good and like I'm making use of my life and fulfillment. Like those are the things that really contribute to somebody feeling passionate. Uh, it's also something that excites you. Like those are the things that really feed into a passion. And I think the vast majority, the overwhelming, like 98, 99% of the world does not want to be an entrepreneur once they discover the realities of what being an entrepreneur actually is. So, and I think that's makes sense. Like from a, when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to build something, you need an awesome, amazing, capable team around you. And if everybody wanted to be the entrepreneur, then it doesn't work, right? You've got everybody trying to be the alpha and nobody trying to be the rest of the team. And so this is where I think people really have to honestly assess what they want. And so uh, I'll use my wife as an example. I, when I look inward, want to be an alpha. It's just what I want. Uh, everything about me like feeds into that. Uh, I like being in charge. I like being the decision maker. I like the pressure resting on my shoulders. I have a vision. I want to be visionary. I want to lead. I actually don't want to manage. So I need to surround myself with people who don't want that. They're not competing with me for that because they don't want to be that. And my wife is the perfect example. My wife is a beta. Now that does not mean she's submissive and people have a totally distorted, bizarre view of what it means to be a beta. So if you look at the, the world of wolves, this showed me what should be meant when people say alpha and beta. So people think of a beta as submissive as being weaker. And when you see the, um, wolves and how they fall into you have a leader decision maker that's the alpha the beta is oftentimes bigger and stronger and their job is to create the space for the alpha to execute in now for whatever reason the beta doesn't want to be the one that's making those decisions maybe they don't think they're as good at it maybe they don't think strategically maybe they're incredibly good at execution and that's just people recognizing what do i like what do i want to be good at what am i going to invest in in terms of a skill set so my wife wants to invest in that ability to execute. My wife is very good when she has clear instructions, but then has to be very creative in how to do that. My wife is anything but a pushover. So she is at her happiest when I'm out there with strategic vision. I'm the one for whom it, you know, the ultimate pressure rests on. And then I work with her as equals, by the way. I'm not saying that being the alpha is 
better or more valuable. It's just a role. And just like beta is not more valuable than the alpha, it's just a role. And when you can meet each other as equals and understand that both are necessary to really building something, then you can have something incredible. So I think that we, as a society, have decided, oh, the, uh, the entrepreneur, the leader role, like that's, that's cool, that's better. And so you have all these people that would otherwise be amazing betas or number three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like whatever position really resonates with them, they could be amazing at that. They think that they should be something different. And that creates this really sad environment where people are striving to be something that actually doesn't resonate with them. So I think people really need to identify what resonates. And then people that are in the sort of culturally cool position need to fully understand and externalize and verbalize as aggressively as possible that we are coming to this as equals, that I'm not better than you. My role isn't more important than you. My role is just different. I literally have page after page of questions, um, but I know you're a busy guy, so I want to get to my favorite part of the interview. This is when we find out more about you as a person rather than just the philosophies and the ideas that made you such a success. So I'll throw out some prompts, and if you just come back with the first thing that comes into your mind, and we'll take it from there. Okay. What is your favorite podcast? Ooh, um, I don't listen to a lot, but I'll go with Gary V. I love Gary V. I interviewed him on the, I think it was the first ever episode I did, and he was an absolute star. He just throws gem after gem of insights out, and everybody should definitely check out that interview. So what's a myth that you hope should you die? You know, what's a myth that you think needs to be eliminated right now? That everyone should be an entrepreneur. Has there been a purchase for, say, under £100 or $100 or less, you know, that's made a great impact in your life? What was the thing that jumps to your mind the most? A book. I literally can just take the most recent book that I bought, which as of right now is Revolution for Dummies by um, Bassam Yusuf. How do you think marriage has changed you as a person? Wow. Uh, it's made me a way better team player. So who do you look up to as a role model in your life? My wife. Are there any particular interview questions that you really hate? Oh, man, I guess anything that I judge an interview by, whether it was valuable to that person's audience. So, yeah, if they're asking me something that is self-serving to me but won't help the audience, I actually usually, I didn't with you because I didn't get that vibe, but... I usually warn people against that. Like if they're like, hey, what are you here to promote? I'm like, don't worry about me. Like what's going to bring value to your audience? And that actually is selfish because if your audience feels like, whoa, I really got something from him, then they'll think way better of me and they're more likely to engage with me, which is actually what's useful to me. So it's an entirely selfish way of going about it. Make no mistake about it. But um, I just think it's a better strategy. Now you've interviewed some amazing people, but has there been anybody that you've interviewed that you've been really disappointed by? There have been people that I've outright hated and I will never mention them because I'm so grateful that they were willing to come on the show that it would be in my worldview disgusting to rat them out when they, even if they were being, you know, self promoting that they came on my show, especially when I was really just getting started. But make no mistake, there were people that came on the show. I wanted to bite their eyes out because I thought they were super arrogant or, 
they were just douchey off camera. I mean, whatever. But yeah, I'd never say. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you tell me. But you have to take the good with the bad because the bad, especially, are the people that make you who you are. You learn from it. You you know you become a better interviewer from it. You learn what you look for in a potential guest, and it, it does help you. And I've had a few, and I'll never admit to them either. So if we flip it around, who would you say is the people that have blown you away, you know, that you've been really surprised by the level of quality that they've provided? Well, there have, def- there have been people that have become, like, lifelong friends. Uh, Peter Diamandis has become, like, downright important in my life. Naveen Jane, same thing. Jim Quick has become one of my closest friends ever. And these were all people that I've met through the show. So... Definitely. And that list, could I'll give you another one, um, Faraz Zahabi. That guy, just unbelievable. Like, I consider it one of my moral obligations to make him more famous because I think the world needs his mind. So I'm sure you've built up another massive fan base from this interview alone, but which interviews would you recommend somebody listening to this to should check out right now just to get that kind of intro into the the joy that is impact theory david goggins we've who we have already talked about um just released today so it's on my mind you'll have to i don't know if she'll remain in all time but right now she really feels amazing um which is vanessa van edwards just her advice is so usable um and then who else would i go with um Naveen Jane, I think, is is a great one that people should really hear. And who's on the bucket list of people you want to interview? You know, do you have any dream people that you want to interview next? Oh, definitively, that list is is legendary and legion. Um, Barack Obama, that's my like kingmaker. Like, I I think I could just absolutely smash that interview. Um, Jay-Z, Stephen King is, I'm desperate to get him on the show. Um, yeah, I could go on and on with that list. So do you have any tips for anybody listening, like myself, who, you know, are creating our own shows, our own podcasts and things like that? What can we do to make sure that we keep getting better and better guests and, you know, build up to the level of, like Impact Theory is? Well, here's the, the truth. So that's a, a two-part question. One, how do you long-term book a show? Because any one person, and I've had some luck with this in the past, and and they were watershed moments. um, And those, like to do that, you want to show genuine appreciation for them. So know them very, very well. Know what their agenda is. And be able to very concisely say, this is what I know about you. And if they see in that, like, whoa, like this guy actually understands me, understands what I'm trying to accomplish in the world, and then why coming on the show would be good for them, right? So not why it's going to be good for you, why it's going to be good for them. And so in the beginning, when we had like virtually no followers, um, and this brings me to my second part, which is have an awesome booker who knows how the game actually works. So I didn't know how the game actually worked. I thought that the first part that I gave you, that showing genuine appreciation of why coming on the show would be good for them, I thought that was going to get me everyone in the world, and it got me virtually nobody. It got me a couple, and they were very key. But then that took us into the second part, which is how does booking real talent actually work? So they have publicists and people that are gatekeepers. They're the ones that usually you have to convince. In fact, you might get a yes from the celebrity, and then their PR agency says no. 
And then they're going to listen to their PR agency because they don't know you, right? So even though for that moment, they were like, wow, this guy really knows me and appreciates me. Like, I'll go on their show, yeah. But you just can't ever get it booked. It's because the PR agency is who actually controls their time. So understanding how they work, getting to know them, building a long-term relationship, maybe helping out some of their smaller clients um, to show them that you really run a good show, that the experience that the guests are going to have when they come on is great. So word of mouth is huge. So we go way out of our way. When our guests come here, forget what you see on camera. You should see how we treat them when they're off camera. Like they just have a a top-notch experience from the moment they get here to the moment they leave. And Peter Diamandis, I will say, uh, I will quote as saying, that is the best media experience I've ever had in my life. Okay, so just to give you an idea of like how well we're treating people off camera, um, super, super important. And then... The way that our show has gotten some of the people that we've gotten is almost entirely the result of one man, and uh, we call him Dr. Finesse. His real name is Christopher, but we call him Dr. Finesse because he is so good at his job at like finessing the situation and getting people on here. And uh, one thing I was about to say, but then sidetracked myself, was one of the things that we promised people when we were tiny and had virtually nobody was this will be the best interview you've ever had. And then I actually had to deliver on that promise. So we would send them the interviews and say, just watch the interview. Like, yes, you've never heard of this guy. And maybe you've never even heard of the guest, but watch how he interviews. And so that was me, you know, doing the obscene amount of research to make sure whoever I had on that that was going to be the best interview that person had ever done. So what's the message that you want anybody listening to this interview to take from it? I want them to take away that they are capable of anything they set their mind to, but hiding in that statement is an obscene amount of hard work. And they can engage with me socially. I'm very, very active socially. And you can find me at, at Tom Bilyeu across virtually every social platform. And my last name is spelled B as in Bravo, I-L-Y-E-U. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I, I still can't believe that he, he agreed to come on. You're somebody that I look up to and, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from you. So to be able to have a chance to speak to you, it's been an absolute pleasure. And to get such gems of answers, it's been an amazing experience. So thank you very much for taking the time. Awesome, man. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. I, I definitely do not take it for granted. For today's show notes and more, please go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash 28. That's www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash 28. That's it for another week. Thanks for listening. Absorb it. Practice it. Use it. Until next time, keep trying to hit that next level in your life.